Fucking My name is Elgin Barrett, and today's story takes us to a rundown pharmacy, an old-fashioned chemist shop at the dead end of a dying high street. It's the kind of place you would walk past without a second glance, but within, things may not be quite as they appear. I'll tell you this one myself. It's called The Purgatories of Mr. Vine. This old chemist shop has been my entire world for longer than I care to think about. Day in, day out, I have sat here on this high stool in the dispensary, the shelves around me crammed with medicines of every description, tonics and tinctures, balms and balsams, capsules, pastels, pills and potions. There was a time when I could have given you chapter and verse on every one, dosages and risks, allergies, side effects, anything you asked me. But these days, I struggle to remember what any of the damn things are for. I look around me and despair. For all is in complete disarray. My dispensing bench is strewn with stopperless bottles and lidless pots, part-pop blister packs, half-squeezed tubes, open jars of crusting ointment. Behind me, the sink overflows with unwashed crockery. On the floor are piles of papers and prescriptions and unopened post. It is an abysmal state of affairs. But what can I say? I hold my hands up. I am a total disgrace to my profession, I know. And yet, all I do is sit here, locked up inside my head, the same thoughts chasing one another round and round, pinballing off the inside of my skull. How can this possibly be? How did I let this happen? Surely things cannot go on like this. Surely not. And yet they do. Oh, why does no one put a stop to it? Why do they not just come and close me down? There are times when I pinch myself, slap my forehead, command myself to focus, to think, to see. Because there is an air of unreality about it. Could this actually happen to me? It is as if it is happening to someone else. But who? There is no one else for this to happen to. No one. I am utterly alone. I can no longer say when I was last troubled by a customer. I can't even remember when Mrs Ruddock left, although it is now so long ago that I grow almost nostalgic for the woman. No, there is only me. So how am I to account for this? Did I bring this all upon myself? Is it simply the result of my own sloth and lethargy? Or is there more to it than that? Every hour of every day, I pick over the events that have led me to this pass. I go back through the same story again and again. The decisions, the mistakes, the chance events. But still, I cannot decide whose fault it is. Is it really mine? Or is this all the doing of Mr. Derek Vine? You see, I really don't think it was meant to work out like this. I'm sure I was once a rather promising young man. I graduated from pharmaceutical college with a decent degree, and I had my sights set on a job in industry. 
The corporate sector. That was the thing, not the humble high street chemist shop. I remember I sent off applications to all the titans of Big Pharma, to clinical research labs, to government and industry. And while I waited for the job offers to tumble in, I signed on with an agency for work to tide me over. They offered the kind of jobs no experienced pharmacist would touch, last-minute cover for sickness or long, dreary late-night shifts. But that was no matter. It was a passing phase and I wasn't fussy. And then, out of the blue, they asked if I was free to do some locum work. The proprietor of a small shop on the south coast was going into hospital for a surgical procedure and needed someone to run the business while he was away. It was a month's contract, and as a bonus, it came with free accommodation. Spartan, I was told, but sufficient to my needs. I jumped at it. It was more responsibility than I'd ever had before, and I was sure it would stand me in good stead. In fact, I think I took the train down the very next day. But, oh, how my heart sank when I saw the place. It was at the dead end of a dying high street, a stuck-in-time kind of spot if ever there was one. The front door was flanked by two Victorian bay windows. No attempt had been made at a display. In one there was a set of weighing scales, in the other a dusty old carboy, filled to the top of its long neck with an oily orange liquid. The only hint of modernity was a security camera on a bracket in the porch, and on the fascia above it, in flaking gold lettering, was the proprietor's name. Derek Vine, fellow of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I pushed the door open and inhaled that familiar chemist shop smell, that strange cloying blend of sweetness and astringency. The interior was as hopelessly antiquated as the facade. The wall on the left was shelved from floor to ceiling and sparsely populated by a haphazard selection of cheap consumer goods. There was a line of four scruffy kitchen chairs for customers to sit and wait for their prescriptions. In the corner, an old Avery weighing machine, and on the right, a long counter cluttered with tatty point-of-sale displays. Chronic migraine, bleeding gums, end the embarrassment, tame your heartburn, put a stop to the misery today. <laughs> I shook my head. What on earth had I let myself in for? And only then did I realise that a pair of eyes was watching me. They were pale blue and unblinking and set deep in a puffy pink face, framed by an electric frizz of permed grey hair. Their owner sat perfectly still on a high stool next to the cash register, her bulk swaddled in a crisply starched white housecoat. "'You must be the locum,' she said in a low Hampshire burr. "'Yes,' I said, "'I'm Mr Godfrey, Ben Godfrey,' and I held out my hand. "'I'm Mrs Ruddock,' she said, and her eyes narrowed in instant dislike. No, my first impressions of Mr Vine's chemist shop were not favourable, but at the time I was so young and callow that I was unused to making judgments. I was content to let matters take their course. And as I remember it, there were no obvious signs of anything untoward in those first few weeks, no clues as to the fate that was to befall me. 
The only exception to this, I suppose, would be Mrs. Ruddock. She was the one and only member of staff, and clearly as much a part of the establishment as the fixtures and fittings. She rarely moved from her stool behind the counter, but when she did, she would groan and sigh as she heaved her large frame around the shop. Yes, there was always something rather unnerving about her. And it wasn't just her sarcastic deference to my qualifications or the eye-rolling contempt with which she treated the mildest request for assistance. No, the strangest thing was her fanatical devotion to Mr Vine. I grew heartily sick of hearing that Mr Vine would not wish it or that is not Mr Vine's way. But if I were foolish enough to demur, she would fix me with that fierce, level gaze of hers and mutter very quietly, Mr Vine is a far more brilliant gentleman than the likes of you will ever be. And as she said it, her eyes would take on a distant look and her face would be illuminated by something almost like a smile. But apart from that, I can recall nothing of special interest from those early days. The shop was never busy, and at Mrs Ruddock's insistence, I remained in the dispensary, while she attended to the very few customers who came in. In the evenings, I retired to my accommodation on the floor above. It was as spartan as I had been warned. No more than a bed-sitting room, a tiny kitchenette, and a shower room with badly mildewed walls. An utterly unmemorable place, mean dilapidated and squalid. From the moment I first set foot there, I couldn't wait to leave. And yet, these have been my living quarters for decades now. For decades and decades. So how on earth did it happen? I believe that the start of my undoing came on the Tuesday of the fourth and final week of my contract. That was when there was an unexpected visit from the local solicitor, I heard him introduce himself to Mrs. Ruddock and demand in officious tones to see the locum. I poked my head around the corner of the dispensary and found a balding, sweaty, corpulent fellow in a too tight suit who gave me a sneering kind of look as much to say he had expected someone rather more impressive. Then he gathered himself and with ill-concealed glee imparted the news. I am sorry to tell you that uh, Mr. Vine is no longer with us. Pardon, said Mrs. Ruddock. He passed away on Tuesday night. What? There were complications post-op, I believe, he said somewhat impatiently. I'm sorry, are you saying he's dead? I asked. Well, yes. He started to flush slightly. I looked across and saw Mrs. Ruddock staring into the middle distance, mouth open, her sandal dangling forlornly from her swollen, stockinged foot. "'Oh, Mr. Vine,' she moaned. "'Oh, Mr. Vine!' "'Are you all right, Mrs. Ruddock?' I asked. "'Mrs. Ruddock?' And from somewhere deep within came a long, low, rasping moan. "'No!' I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, of course, stammered the solicitor, rather taken aback. But what is to be done, muttered Mrs. Ruddock, what is to be done? For a moment, we all stood there helplessly, unsure of what to say. 
and then the solicitor switched back into professional mode. The um, reason for my visit is that there is a provision in Mr Vine's will, he said, which it is my duty to inform you of. The provision gives the incumbent locum the first option to buy the business, the whole business, premises, freehold, goodwill, all of it, lock, stock and barrel. I wasn't sure I had heard him correctly. The incumbent's locum. Surely that was me. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. No need to give your answer now. He slapped a fat envelope on the counter. It's all there in black and white. Have a look through and give me a call. In my opinion, it is a most attractive proposition. And with that, he retreated rapidly towards the door. I'm not sure how long Mrs Ruddock and I remained without moving, but it was she who finally broke the silence. Would it be all right, Mr Godfrey, if I were to take a a half-day's holiday this afternoon? Of course, Mrs Ruddock, of course. Go now. I shall manage fine by myself. I can remember little about the rest of the day, although I do know that the solicitor's envelope lay unopened on the dispensing bench that evening. However attractive the proposal might be, I simply wasn't interested. As I've said, I had no intention of pursuing a career in retail pharmacy, and if I were to change my mind, it would have to be for a rather better prospect than the old chemist shop of Mr Derek Vine. But when I came downstairs the following morning, my curiosity got the better of me. I made myself a mug of tea, tore open the envelope, and started to skim the bundle of pages. And the more I read, the more I could see the solicitor was right, It really was an attractive proposal. The asking price was ridiculously low, and both the turnover and profit were rather high. Astonishingly high, in fact. I looked through it again more closely this time, but I could find no obvious drawbacks, no catches. Indeed, on second reading, it seemed an even more tempting proposition than on the first. Of course, it would be a departure from the path I had envisaged for myself. But what of it? How often would a chance like this just fall into my lap? I studied the figures again, and by the time I had finished my third mug of tea, I had persuaded myself I would be mad to turn it down. That lunchtime, I called the bank and inquired about a loan. And that's how I found myself the owner of Mr Derek Vine's pharmacy at such a tender age, without fully understanding how it had come to pass, without knowing that the trap had been sprung, without realising that the walls were already closing in. Mrs Ruddock was off work for the best part of a month. She made no effort to contact me, and I had no number for her. But that suited me fine. The purchase of the business was proceeding smoothly, and it was something of a relief not to have her there. For such an antiquated old place, the shop was surprisingly well-equipped with security cameras, which meant I could keep an eye on things perfectly well from my seat in the dispensary. And I started to get a feel for the shop, to dream of ways I might make something of it. I sketched ideas for a fresh layout. I pictured a sleek new glass shop front with my own name above the door. The Godfrey Pharmacy. It had a rather nice ring to it, I thought. Mrs Ruddock's absence also gave me the chance to become familiar with the retail side of things. There was almost no passing trade and the few customers were mostly regulars of long standing. 
there were a number of half-blind old ladies who would shuffle in for their repeat prescriptions. They would address me as dear or my love or occasionally even mistake me for Mr Vine himself. Then there was a smartly dressed old gentleman who would pop in every Tuesday and ask me crisply how his Audrey was getting along. I had no idea who he meant, but did my best to respond with a few bland reassurances. And every now and again, a middle-aged addict in a ragged T-shirt would stagger through the door to plead for methadone. But you don't understand. My life is a fucking nightmare, he would whine. I learnt to intercept him before he could get too far into the shop and then manoeuvre him swiftly towards the door. A fucking nightmare, he would shout accusingly as I shooed him out, leaving a lingering odour of unwashed flesh behind him. And then one morning, just before nine o'clock, I heard a familiar sound, the rattle of Mrs Ruddock's key in the back door, followed by the creak of the staircase as she plodded up to the staff cupboard to ready herself for the day. Her unexpected return threw me into a panic, because over the past few weeks it had become clear I could manage perfectly well without her. She had no part in my plans for the future of the Godfrey Pharmacy, and if I was going to let her go, surely now was the time to do it, now before she could settle back into her old routine again. But how would I broach the subject? How would I phrase it? I knew it would only take her a minute or two to change into her white coat, and then she would trudge downstairs again. I commanded myself to man up, to confront her, to do it now. The back door of the dispensary opened. Good morning, Mrs Ruddock, I said. It is if you say so, Mr Godfrey, she muttered, brushing past me. I, uh, I started. But the dogged look, the resentful familiarity with which she heaved herself onto her stool, the sullen entitlement with which she surveyed her domain, all conspired to render me speechless. I, uh... I foolishly repeated. She turned and treated me to a level gaze of those pale blue eyes, and then she half raised an eyebrow, as if daring me to continue. Yes, uh, I, uh... It was no good. I just didn't have the courage for it. I made an excuse and retreated back into the dispensary. I regretted my lack of resolve immediately. Mrs Ruddock lost no time in letting me know my unworthiness for my new role. The wisdom of Mr Vine was cited more frequently than ever. There was constant sighing and tutting as she returned items I'd moved to their former positions. Any suggestions for change were met with a stony silence, and requests for information or assistance were, as usual, batted away with disdain. I cursed myself for missing my moment, but told myself I would find another. And anyway, there was no need to rush. I could afford to take my time. The new shop front, the new name, all that could wait. Because let's face it, I had landed on my feet. Because although it was a shabby, run-down old place, the monthly bank statements were already showing it to be just as profitable as the accounts had promised, if not more so. This was a little puzzling, of course, for a shop with such pitifully low footfall, but who was I to question my good fortune? Leave things be, I told myself. And so the weeks passed. Mrs Ruddock and I maintained an uneasy truce. She on her high stool at the counter, I on mine in the dispensary. The old ladies shuffled in and recited the same endearments. The elderly gentleman came in and inquired after his Audrey. 
the middle-aged addict tried his luck and was summarily evicted. But my life is a fucking nightmare! Out! barked Mrs Ruddock. And all this time, the money kept stacking up in the bank account. There was definitely something odd here, and I knew I should get to the bottom of it. I mean, what if there was some kind of mistake? What if I had to pay it all back? Eventually, I forced myself to sit down and have a proper look at the statement, to go through it line by line. It was a tedious process. The business I discovered relied mostly on regular monthly payments of varying amounts, but all of fairly significant sums. Who were these people, I wondered? And what were they paying for? But who was there to ask? Would the bank know? Why would they? Would Mrs Ruddock? Even if she did, I was sure she would deny all knowledge. I could think of no way of addressing the mystery, but still it preyed on my mind. And then one morning, Mrs Ruddock made a mistake. It seemed a trivial one at first, but it was a mistake that changed everything. I had left my seat in the dispensary to fetch something from my room upstairs, and when I got to the landing, I noticed the door of the staff cupboard was slightly ajar. For as long as I had been there, Mrs Ruddock had been fastidious in keeping it locked. I couldn't resist. I crept along and peeked inside. On the floor was a jumble of her footwear, and hanging from the rail was a beige raincoat and two of the white housecoats she wore for work. I pulled them apart to see what else I could find, and noticed something odd about the back of the cupboard. I reached inside and tapped. It sounded hollow, and so I pushed. And what do you know? It swung back to reveal a narrow staircase, a staircase leading upwards. How extraordinary! There had been no reference to this in the floor plans I had seen when I'd bought the place. I checked behind me and listened for a moment. Then I ducked under the hanging rail and started to climb the stairs. From about halfway up, I could hear a faint electrical hum, and I began to detect a sharp, pungent odour, a definite chemical smell, some kind of aldehyde, I guess. At the top, I emerged into a long, low attic room. It was windowless, but glowed with a soft, diffuse light. It took a second or two for my eyes to become accustomed, and then I realised the light was coming from a number of computer screens. There must have been a dozen of them, maybe more, arranged in two rows facing each other. And as I walked cautiously down the aisle between them, I could see that each was showing a different image. One at the far end was displaying a striking kaleidoscopic pattern of rich dark greens and purples. Another had a view through some French windows of a lush green lawn. I stopped at a screen showing a huge beach with an old fort at the end of a long causeway. The tide was out because there were fishing boats and dinghies at various angles on the sand. And there were people too, dog walkers and bathers paddling in the distant surf. It was rather lovely, and I was tempted to stare for longer, but I reminded myself that time was short. I needed to be out of there before Mrs Ruddock realised I was missing. I took another look around, and this time noticed something else rather strange. Every screen sat on top of a metal box. No, not exactly a metal box. On closer inspection... They were safes. They were old-fashioned, heavy-duty steel safes, each with a combination wheel on the front. What on earth was the meaning of this? I squatted down to take a closer look at the one nearest me. 
and found a small typed label on the front. Mrs A Langston. Mrs A Langston. Did I know that name from somewhere? But I didn't have the time to consider because there was a distant muffled shout from somewhere in the shop below. Mr Godfrey! Damn, it was Mrs Ruddock. Mr Godfrey, where are you? I rapidly retraced my steps, pushed through the coats and clicked the cupboard door shut. Just in time, Mrs Ruddock was already panting up the stairs from the dispensary. Mr Godfrey, she said, much aggrieved as her head appeared between the banisters. Mr Godfrey, there is a customer who insists on seeing the pharmacist. Of course, Mrs Ruddock, I said. I'll be down right away. Those pale blue eyes gave me that steady, level look. And then she sighed and lumbered down to the shop again. Mrs. Ruddock made no further mention of it. Her manner betrayed no hint that anything untoward had occurred. Once again, the staff cupboard remained firmly locked, and as the days passed, I tried to dismiss the incident from my mind. After all, perhaps I had simply wandered into the premises of an adjacent business by mistake. Might it not be a software company or a graphic design studio or something like that? Indeed, by the end of the week, I was entertaining the idea that it was a figment of my imagination, that I had dreamt the whole thing. But one detail nagged at me, the name on the front of the safe, Mrs A. Langston. I'd seen it somewhere before, somewhere recently, I was sure of it, but where? And then it came to me, the bank statement. I checked. And there it was, a reference for one of the regular monthly payments, Mrs Audrey Langston, 4807. Surely this was no coincidence. But what the connection might be, I had no idea. And then, the following Tuesday presented a chance to find out. Mrs Ruddock was in the stockroom at the back of the shop when I heard someone rap on the counter on the other side of the dispensary wall. Shop! called an elderly male voice. I went round to see who it was. Ah, he said, I just popped in to see how my Audrey was doing. A penny dropped. I looked at him for a moment. So, you must be Mr Langston, I said. He looked perplexed. Yes, uh, of course. Is there anything wrong? Uh, No, no, I'm the new proprietor, so I thought it was time I introduced myself. Ben Godfrey. A cloud passed across his face as I held out my hand. Uh, But Mr Vine? No longer with us, I'm afraid. What? His grip was suddenly tight enough to break my knuckles. Uh, But Audrey! I hesitated. His face was ashen. He did explain to you, he said a note of panic in his voice. You do realise what you've taken on? You do realise? I leant towards him, struggling to frame a question. And then there was a noise behind me. Don't you go worrying about your Audrey, Mr Langston, came Mrs Ruddock's voice. Everything is under control. Mr Langston released his grip on my hand as Mrs Ruddock planted herself next to me at the counter. There is no cause for concern, Mr Langston, she said. And then she turned and gave me her grimmest basilisk stare. Thank you, Mr Godfrey. I will look after things from here. You do realise what you've taken on. Mr Langston's question rang and rang in my head. What was the reason for that sudden desperate look in his eyes? And why Mrs Ruddock's sudden unexpected solicitude? Yes, what was it that I had taken on? 
I thought of the money mysteriously piling up in my bank account and felt a shudder of apprehension. I realised I'd been too lax. There was some connection and I needed to find out what it was. I needed to go back to the attic room and that meant getting my hands on the key to the staff cupboard. But how? There was no point in asking Mrs Ruddock. I had no wish to inflame her suspicions. There had to be another way. Over the next few days I observed her intently. When she arrived in the morning, she took the key from her large black handbag, unlocked the cupboard door, and immediately transferred it to the pocket of the white coat she would wear that day. In the evening, it was the same process in reverse. It was maddeningly simple and maddeningly secure. I started to consider other possibilities. Could I pick the lock, perhaps? But I had no idea how to start. Could I force it? Even if I could, how would I repair the damage? I was at a loss. And then one day... Mrs. Ruddock asked permission for a longer lunch break than usual, as she had a dental appointment. I granted it, of course. She climbed the stairs to change out of her white coat, returned and paused by the till. At that moment, the telephone rang in the stockroom, and I seized my chance. "'Would you get that, Mrs. Ruddock, please?' I called. She sighed and with bad grace stumped towards the back of the premises, leaving her bag unattended on the counter. It was a second's work to twist the catch and fish out the key." If you're experiencing any pain, I said when she returned, feel free to take the rest of the afternoon off. Oh, don't you worry about me, Mr Godfrey, she said. I'm made of stern stuff. I watched her plod off down the road, and then I scribbled a note, back in ten minutes, stuck it on the front door and shot the bolt. My heart was pounding as I unlocked the staff cupboard and made my way up the narrow staircase. The attic room was just as I remembered, The strange smell, the electrical hum, the low rafters, the glowing monitors, the safes with their combination locks. I walked at a stoop down the aisle between them. There was the screen showing the lawn through the French windows. It had changed slightly from before, I noticed. This time the windows were closed and flecked with rain. And on the other side of the aisle was the screen with the kaleidoscopic shapes. Although these were nothing like the ones I'd seen before... It was now a myriad of shards and fragments swirling around each other in opaline teardrops and vivid red crescents. And there were others, too, that I hadn't spotted previously. The view through a car windscreen as it drove through some remote moorland. A strange series of multicoloured interlocking globes. But where was the one I was looking for? The one of the huge beach with the fort in the distance? I almost didn't recognise it, because the tide was in now, the beach had vanished, the boats were afloat and the fort stood on its own little island. I bent forward and checked the name on the fridge below. Yes, Mrs A. Langston. This was the one I had come for, because the reference in the bank statement had been followed by a number, Audrey Langston 4807. And it was just a hunch, but it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, it might yield something useful. I knelt down and turned the dial to four. Then eight, then zero. Could I sense something give within the mechanism? I rotated it to seven, and yes, the door nudged towards me slightly. I tugged, and it swung open. The first thing that struck me was the smell. It was the smell I had detected on first climbing the stairs, the smell that permeated the whole room, but it was now so pungent as to be quite overwhelming. I coughed, my eyes smarted, I blinked and shook my head, and then stared into the safe. Within was a stainless steel vat about the size of a salad drawer, 
but it was difficult to make out much else. Cautiously, I gripped either side of the vat and tilted it towards me. It was three-quarters full of an opaque, slightly viscous liquid. I looked at it more closely and had the sense there was some kind of object in there. I rocked it gently from side to side to set a slight wave in motion. Yes, there was definitely something. I tilted it at more of an angle to bring the liquid up to the brim. What was it? What on earth was it? And then there was a noise behind me. Mr Godfrey! What do you think you're doing? I turned my head with a jerk. Mrs. Ruddock, I said, and as I did, I lost my grip on the sides of the vat. It toppled forward, and the cool, strange-smelling fluid sloshed over my trousers. At the same time, the mysterious object spilled out. It was a roundish thing the size of a large grapefruit. It bounced in a rubbery kind of way as it hit the floor, and then came to an abrupt halt, restrained by a number of electrical wires to which it was attached. "'You fool!' shouted Mrs. Ruddock, a note of wild hysteria in her voice. "'You fool! What have you done?' The electrical frizz of her hair seemed to stand on end more than ever. Those cold blue eyes were wide with panic. She took a step towards the object and then raised her hands in a gesture of despair. "'Oh, my! Oh, my! What are we to do? What are we to do?' And it was only at that moment I realised what the object was. It was a brain.' and from its size, a human brain at that. I shuddered. It was naked and white and horribly, obscenely exposed as it lay on the splintered floorboards. Put it back in the vat! Mrs Ruddock was yelling at me. In the vat now! There is not a moment to lose! The last thing I wanted to do was touch it, but such was the urgency of her tone that I obeyed without question. I clasped it in two hands. The fluid had left it smooth and slippery, and I held it as lightly as I could to avoid the sensation of my fingertips penetrating its bizarre corrugations. It seemed to me a sacred thing, inspiring reverence and terror in equal measure. It seemed like a shriveled, wrinkled relic. I thought I told you to put it back in the vat! barked Mrs. Ruddock as she lumbered towards me from the far corner of the room, a large Winchester bottle in her arms. I righted the vat with my knee. Gently now, she said, gently. My hands shaking, I lowered the brain into the vat. Then she unscrewed the cap of the Winchester and poured the foul-smelling liquid over it. The poor love, she muttered as she did so. The poor dear love... When she had finished, she nodded for me to replace the vat in the safe and then pushed the door shut and spun the combination. I hauled myself to my feet and the two of us glared at one another. Can you please tell me what is going on here, Mrs Ruddock? I think it would be best, Mr Godfrey, she said, if you were to put this entire incident out of your mind. We will agree that nothing has happened and we shall not speak of it again. Is that fair enough? No, Mrs Ruddock, I said no. That is not fair enough. This is my business now. I have a right to know what is happening. I'm sorry, but Mr Vine would not wish it. Hold a hell with Mr Vine! Just tell me! Her face flushed, and she fixed me with her fiercest blue gaze. Tell me what is going on, I repeated. Take it from me, Mr. Godfrey. There is no need for you to know. Now, please. And she gestured towards the top of the staircase. But I wasn't having it. I looked around the room for something, anything that would force her to tell me. 
and that was when I noticed a number of cables running from the back of Mrs. Langston's safe to a bank of power sockets halfway up the wall. You tell me, Mrs. Ruddock, or I switch it off. She looked shocked. No, you can't do that. I can, and I will. Now, tell me. I leant over and put my finger on the switch. I mean it, Mrs. Ruddock. She put her head back and closed her eyes for a moment, and then looked at me again. Very well. You will not thank me for it, though. I said nothing. My finger remained on the switch. I looked at her and waited. At last, she began. For a number of years, Mr. Vine has run this facility for the benefit of a few select clients. You will already have gathered that Mr. Vine was no ordinary person. Over the years, he developed an entirely new technique for the preservation of the human brain, one that involved two significant innovations. I don't know if you are familiar with this field of endeavour, Mr. Godfrey, but until now, efforts to preserve human brains have focused on a method of deep freezing, known, I believe, as cryonics. I was so taken aback that all I could do was nod at her. Mr. Vine's method, she continued, is rather different. It is a chemical method, one that preserves the brain in a pristine state, while avoiding the need for any drastic reduction in temperature, something which he fears may damage the brain tissue. I see, I said, I see, not actually seeing at all. My mind was scrambling to come to terms with what she was telling me. But, 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 but why, I stammered, why on earth would anybody do this? I mean, what's the point? She looked at me as if she were speaking to an exceptionally stupid child. The point... Mr. Godfrey, and there was a gleam in her eye now, is that they can be reanimated at some time in the future, so that every one of these people may live meaningful, fulfilling, joyful lives once more. She gestured around the room with a broad sweep of her arm. I turned and looked around me. Every one of these people? Had I heard her correctly? Are you saying that every one of these safes contains a brain, a human brain. Obviously, a pickled human brain. She remained silent. She simply looked at me. You are insane, I said. You are stark, raving mad. She twitched her shoulders in a slight dismissive shrug. I tried to gather my thoughts. What shall I say? How could I respond? At last, something came to me, one of the very many reasons why I knew this to be utter, arrant nonsense. But you can't reanimate a human brain, I said. The technology doesn't exist. It may not exist at the moment, she replied quite calmly, but it will. The technology is coming, we are sure of that, and it may be with us sooner than you think. Our clients are the wise ones, the ones who are prepared. Oh, no, I said. Oh, no, you, you and Mr. Vine, you don't know what you're talking about. You can think what you wish, but that is not what anyone else in this room believes. Then they're as mad as you are. They are all completely mad, or at least they would be if they were still alive. She looked at me in that level, common sense way of hers. Oh, they're alive, Mr. Godfrey. Each and every one is just as alive as you or I. 
but I'd had enough of this. It was time to get a grip on proceedings. Well, I very much doubt the police would agree with you, Mrs. Ruddock, I said. I was rather pleased with that line. I would get the better of her now. And I think, I said, it might be a good idea to get them involved sooner rather than later, don't you? How about I give them a call right now? But she was surprisingly unfazed by the suggestion. If you wish, she sighed. Although, as you say, this is your business now, Mr. Godfrey. You're the legal owner. So you're the one who's been responsible for this facility these past few months. You're the one who's accepted these good people's money. I imagine there will be quite a lot of explaining to do. Call the police if you wish, but I wouldn't be doing that if I were you. And as she said those words, I had the hideous, vertiginous sensation of a vast fissure, a giant chasm opening beneath my feet, the feeling of being suspended in midair, defenceless, powerless, without any understanding of what I was doing or how I'd got there. Because she was right. This was my responsibility now, wasn't it? Legally, financially, it was mine. I clasped my hands to the side of my head and lurched backwards down the aisle between the screens, trying to come to terms with the implications. Yes, Mrs. Rannock was right. If I were to call the police, what could I possibly say? What did I expect them to do? I'm not sure how long I stood there, turning it over in my mind, but eventually... Another question occurred to me, one that I hadn't thought to ask before. Mrs. Ruddock, I said. I turned to the spot at the top of the staircase where she had been standing. But she'd gone. Mrs. Ruddock? I listened hard and thought I could hear her footsteps somewhere below. I clattered down the narrow staircase, out through the cupboard and along the landing. Mrs. Ruddock! I raced down to the dispensary. I had to ask her, I had to know. Mrs. Ruddock! I ran past the counter and out into the porch. Mrs. Ruddock! I yelled. Mrs. Ruddock! You said there were two innovations, but you didn't tell me about the other. What was Mr. Vine's second innovation? But the street was empty. Mrs. Ruddock! For heaven's sake, what was the second innovation? It was too late, though. She was gone. The thread was broken. I was on my own. And from that moment on, I always have been. It was quite some time before I could bring myself to face the attic room again. I tried to block out the horror of that lunchtime. I tried to persuade myself that none of it had happened, that it was all a figment of my imagination, nothing but a bad dream. But it was no good. The facts could not be denied. Mrs. Ruddock had not returned, and the door to the staff cupboard stood wide open now. But worse than anything else was my rage at the trap I had unwittingly fallen into. Hour after hour, I sat at the dispensing bench in a fury, my fists clenched, my mind seething. It was the sheer monumental unfairness of it all, that this was all now somehow my responsibility, that if it were ever discovered, mine would be the blame, the guilt, the opprobrium, because the authorities would see it no other way. How could they? But at the same time, how could this possibly have happened to me? What had I done to deserve it? It was all just so hopelessly, outrageously unfair. It took me over a month, but eventually I forced myself to climb the narrow staircase again. I willed, I urged, I prayed with every step that it would all be gone, that I would find nothing there. 
But of course, it was all just as I had left it. The same smell, the same hum. I didn't allow myself to look at the screens or the typewritten names on the safes. I paced slowly up and down the aisle, trying to master my emotions, control my thoughts. And then something came to me. I stopped. What was it? An intuition, no more than that. I closed my eyes and concentrated. At first there was just blankness, emptiness, and then the faintest of intimations. It was like a rumble too low to be audible, or an unseen door opening in a far distant corridor. I had the sense of something adrift somewhere in the pitch black. It was not a coherent feeling, more like a yearning or an ache. I opened my eyes and looked around, and in that moment I felt some kind of bond with these people, these lost souls in their boxes, these poor deluded fools. They were my responsibility now, there was no getting away from it. For whatever reason, they had put their faith in Mr. Vine, and somehow I had inherited it. I felt something like a duty of care towards them. Because what would it be like to be shut away in a metal box in the forlorn hope, the vain belief, that at some point you would see the light of day, you would live, you would breathe again? I couldn't help myself. I felt sorry for them. I turned and looked at the screen nearest me. Ever since Mrs. Ruddock left, I'd been puzzling over what the screens might be for, and I'd become convinced that this was the second of Mr. Vine's two innovations. I thought of the wires I'd seen attached to Mrs. Langston's brain as it lay on the wooden floor, and told myself that it had to be. But to what end? Was this a way of providing the brains with some kind of stimulation? Perhaps he imagined he was keeping them entertained, or perhaps he thought he could provide them with the illusion of the lives they had left behind. The screen I was looking at was one I'd seen before, the one showing the view through some French windows of a long green lawn. It was not quite as I remembered it. A large shaggy dog was now asleep in a patch of shade about halfway down, and the hollyhocks and roses in the flower beds had come into bloom. It was all rather nice, idyllic, you might say. I bent down and read the name taped on the safe beneath, Mr C. Nesbitt. Yes, I could imagine Mr Nesbitt sitting in his favourite armchair and enjoying this view. I guessed it might once have been his own back garden. So was this what he was watching now? Was that what Mr Vine intended, at least? Presumably, yes. But what would it be like, I wondered? What would it be like if this was the only view you ever saw? If this was the only view and there was no prospect of any other? I turned my head and observed the next screen. It was another I had noticed before, the one with the kaleidoscopic pattern, but now changed utterly. It was now all lozenges of flaming orange, interspersed with diamonds of icy blue. I stared at it for a while and realised it was changing with almost imperceptible slowness. The orange edges were reddening slightly, the diamonds deforming infinitesimally. There was an eerie beauty to it, but I wondered, how long had this poor soul been watching? Come to that, what would it be like for Mrs Langston, at the top of her beautiful beach, the fort in the distance, the boats, the bathers, the dog walkers, and the tide slowly approaching, slowly withdrawing? 
Yes, it would be a pleasure for a few hours, maybe, a few days even. But after that, after weeks and months and years of it, with no purpose, no control, no end in sight, what would it be like then? It came to me as I stood there. It would be torment, wouldn't it? An everlasting agony of frustration and boredom, because that's what these poor souls had been subjected to. Whether by accident or design, that's what Mr. Vine had created for them. It would have looked perfect in the brochure, no doubt, but it was nothing of the kind. This was purgatory. I looked around me. That's what it was. These were the purgatories of Mr. Vine. And then, and then the, the absurdity of it all struck me. What was I thinking? <laughs> I laughed out loud at my own folly because I was getting carried away here, wasn't I? Because this could not be purgatory. Obviously, that was nonsense. It was all nonsense. Mr. Vine might have been a very brilliant man, but the technology to do any of this did not exist. I was sure of it. There was no way these poor souls were still alive. These poor, deluded fools were no more alive than the steel boxes that contained their remains. The place was a meat locker. I needed to be realistic. That was the nature of the horror I had to confront. That was what I had to deal with. I walked slowly up and down the aisle again and came to a halt at the far end. There was a screen I had never paid attention to before. And why would I? It was a view of no interest whatsoever. But this time, for the first time, I looked at it. In fact, I stared at it. I stared at it, dumbfounded, because it was the view of the shelves in the dispensary. The view I had looked at day after day for longer than I could remember. The tablet bottles and drums of pills, the jars of ointment, the blister packs of capsules. What on earth was it doing on this screen? And then, somehow, without me realising, the view changed. I was now looking out from behind the counter. There was the till, the point of sale displays, Mrs. Ruddock's empty stool. And then I was back in the dispensary again. What was this? What was going on? I was in the stockroom now, and then back in the dispensary. For a moment, I was at the entrance, looking out on the street. But not for very long, no, because I was back in the dispensary again. The dispensary! The dispensary! What was this? I tried to tell myself it was the security cameras, a feed from the security cameras. But truth be told, that wasn't quite what it looked like. If truth be told, it looked an awful lot like... I could hardly bring myself to admit it, but it looked an awful lot like my life, like my entire life. I shook my head violently from side to side. I tried to pull myself together. No, no, this wasn't true. It couldn't be. I turned on my heel to go, but something tugged me back. There was still something I needed to check. I felt physically sick as I bent forward to look at the safe beneath the screen. And there it was. A small, fading, typewritten label. A label just like all the others. And on it were the words, Mr. B. Godfrey. Mr. B. Godfrey. Me. 
I reeled down the stairs like a drunk. I staggered into the dispensary as if I'd been punched in the face. No, no, surely not. It was all stupid, ridiculous, preposterous, arrant nonsense. It could not be me in there. I refused to believe it. I refuse, I yelled. Do you hear me, Mr. Vine? I refuse to believe it. I clambered onto my stool and put my head in my hands. This is a joke, I told myself, an elaborate, practical joke. Although who exactly would find it funny, I couldn't say. Or if not a joke, then a coincidence. My name is not a particularly common one, but not particularly uncommon either. Yes, that could be it. Or it could just be a mistake, just a simple, stupid mistake. That kind of thing happens, doesn't it? And yet, however absurd it might sound... I cannot completely banish the thought that my brain might be in that safe upstairs. After all, if it were, it would explain so much. I mean, why is it that I spend my life in such a daze? Why do I see no one else? Why does no one come and close me down? Yes, it would. It would explain all this, all this and more. But what means do I have of proving it? I have been up to the attic room many times. I have spent long hours trying to crack the combination of my safe to discover what might be inside. But it has been to no avail. And it is the same with all the others. I have tried them all, but I can open none of them, not even Mrs Langston's anymore. And so, in the absence of proof one way or the other, I have sat here in this dispensary for longer than I can remember. The same thoughts going round and round. Lost hopelessly lost. So is there no way out? It has occurred to me that there might be. There might be a way to set the whole case to rest. You see, there is an electric socket behind my safe in the attic, the same as all the others. And could I not just go up there and switch it off? Just switch it off and see what happens? A simple click and then, well, then what? Would all just fade to black? Would it put an end to this purgatory of Mr. Vine? It is a tempting thought, a consummation devoutly to be wished, perhaps. But then again, if I threw the switch and nothing happened, what then? What if nothing changed, if all remained exactly as before? Might that not be even worse? I simply can't make up my mind and so I haven't yet found the courage to put it to the test. And I rather suspect I never will. The Purgatories of Mr Vine was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Walls. (laughs) 